Advanced economy money centers make the world go round. In the early 1800s, London and Paris funded globalization cycles. Berlin and Vienna joined the exclusive club as the century waned. New York at the start of the next. Today, East Asia cities are members, including Singapore and Hong Kong. But the 800-pound sumo wrestler of the Pacific Basin is, and has been, Tokyo. Some speculate it was there at the beginning of the Eurodollar, putting overseas dollars held by World War II service members to work. The subsequent multi-decade growth miracle established Tokyo's financial prowess. The 1980s brought disturbance early, the LDC crisis, and euphoria later, the Baburu Keiki. When the bubble burst, Japan's dollar borrowings from U.S. banks dropped by more than three quarters by the end of the 1990s. Then, in 1999, the Bank of Japan implemented the first modern zero interest rate policy. In 2001, the first quantitative easing. From its 1999 low, Japan's dollar borrowings from U.S. banks doubled by 2004, then doubled again by 2009, then doubled again by 2011. In part three of this, the 29th episode of Making Sense, Jeff Snyder explains Tokyo's role in the rise of a synthetic dollar empire and how disturbances within it in early 2014 and late 2017 set off the third and fourth Eurodollar crises. But first, thoughts about the rising appeal of socialism and words about the modern-day monetary tension between the ideas of 18th-century Scottish philosopher David Hume and 19th-century American financier Jay Cook. Hello, everyone. Welcome to today's 29th episode of Making Sense, a Eurodollar University production. My name is Emil Kalinowski, and I am joined by the head of global research for Alhambra Investments, Jeff Snyder. Good morning, Jeff. Good morning, Emil. Let's talk philosophers. We're going to approach different topics, communism, um, whether what the right monetary system might be, as well as dive deep into some of the mechanics be- behind the global monetary system. And it's going to be a high-level overview, kind of philosophical tour through our three uh, parts today. And the first one, we're going to go to an article that got posted today, October 2nd, at Real Clear Markets. And the title they have assigned to it is, There Have Long Been Too Many Have-Nots in the U.S., Jeff, you start out by talking about Dick Costello and what he tweeted this week. Well, he basically tweeted that um, me first capitalists are going to be lined up and shot when the revolution comes. And, you know, I think the, the interesting thing is that, you know, those kinds of tweets have been floating around quite frequently over the last few years. But what made this one kind of noteworthy was that this Dick Costello happened to be the former CEO of Twitter for five years between 2010 and 2015. So, you know, when you, when you look at both his tweet and who the guy is and the fact that he has one and a half million followers, you start to realize this revolution stuff they keep talking about is not fringe stuff. And what kind of revolution are we talking about? Is it going to be a fuzzy revolution, kind of a unicorns and rainbows revolution, 
or are we talking 20th century nightmare kind of revolution? Well, I think, you know, that's the question. There's lots of different revolutions that are floating out in the Twitter sphere, but what unites all of them is that they have some thread of Marxism, socialism running through them. I don't think they've all decided on which, which thread they're all going to take, which causes, you know, an, an enormous amount of uncertainty and chaos in its own right. But then again, that's good for the Marxist socialists who are trying to undertake a revolution. It's more like, you know, what Lenin and, and Stalin did in, in the early 20th century hey, we don't know what this revolution is going to look like. So let's just do it and get it done, and we'll, we'll, we'll figure out the details after. And that's really kind of what we see in, all, uh, in this quote-unquote revolution that's taking place, at least virtually across much of the Internet landscape, is that, look, we don't really know what it'll be, but we hate the way the things are now. We'll just figure it out after it happens. Exactly. Bingo. That last point is what I want to draw the audience's attention to. It's that uh, revolutions can be, they don't happen in any random decade. They take place when the existing order is particularly weak. And as regular viewers of the show know, that's what we've been saying. And we've also been saying that they have good reason to be uh, what agitating for revolution because things are not going so well. And in this article, you take us back to the originators of Marxism, which is Karl Marx and Frederick Engels, and you quote, let me say, actually, I'm going to quote you, and I was hoping you could explain this and what this means. So you say that Marx contributed in, quote, recognizing even for its opponents that capitalism, that which brought enlightenment science into freedom and advancement for its proponents, was the key ingredient which did so. So it's that tension between capitalism is good, but not eventually, maybe not. So, Yeah, I guess the founding principle of Marxism is that, look, we started with feudal society, simple agrarian societies where everybody was oppressed and there was a few monarch, you know, monarchies and nobility, you know, kind of a flat structure where most people were oppressed. And the idea was, how do we get out of it? And, and what, we, what they found out through the Industrial Revolution was that capitalism offered a way out of feudalism, but capitalism, in the Marxist viewpoint, simply enslaved feudalists, in, hmm. in the serfs, in a different way. Instead of being a feudal farmer, a serf stuck on a farm somewhere, you were a you know, wage slave stuck in a factory toiling away. And so it wasn't really one you know, progress in, in that sense. What it what was progress in the sense it was progress was that look, society as a whole advanced from the you know middle of dark ages and into the Enlightenment Industrial Revolution, but that was sort of to Marx an evolutionary stage. We had to go through this crappy stage of capitalism and democracy in order to get to what he envisioned, which was the endpoint, the socialist utopia where everybody was the same. We don't really have to work because capitalism, capitalism had created all these wonderful technologies for us to take advantage of. So that was kind of like, you know, the natural, as you said, natural tension, the tug of war. We have to let capitalism do its work because that's where all the wealth and creation and technology comes from, this innovation and marvelous, marvelous advancements. But it also, it also has a very dark downside. What Marx said was because of capitalism's inherent contradictions, because it exploited workers, there, was a, there would come an inevitable time when capitalism would end. It would be, the revolution was a foregone conclusion as far as Marx said. He said, capitalism reaches its end, the revolutionaries then know to pick, it, pick everything up and, and go on with the socialist revolution. And that's, you know, it's an important point. Communism and capitalism are not competing systems. 
even in the Marxist tradition. Socialism, Marxism, communism is supposed to replace capitalism. No, I'm thinking back to when we first discussed this topic, topic, maybe in episode 15, that we did it through the lens of Les Miserables, which was written by Victor Hugo. And I listened to uh, the Great Books podcast, which uh, had a, a well-known um, professor of literature review Les Miserables. And he made the point that Victor Hugo didn't look at the factory work as terrible, as enslavement, as a continuation of the feudal system, but actually, actually as an escape, as a way for these people who were beaten down, as a way out. So let's, if you want to say anything about that, go ahead. But if not, I'm going to go on. Well, yeah, I mean, look, we, we, I think a lot of us today believe that there's only one strand of Marxism, but that, like there's an orthodox Marxism. And the truth is, there's been lots of different threads of Marxism running throughout the, the entire history, not the least of which is because it does seem like Marx got that wrong, right? I mean, he said, I mean, this was the 1850s, 1840s, 1850s, 1860s when he was writing with Frederick Engels. And what he said was, capitalism's days are numbers, are numbered. So here we are in 2020, <laughs> if capitalism is still going, it may not be going well over the last decade. But I mean, obviously, you know, we're talking about a, hundred, a century and a half waiting for capitalism to find its end point. And, and I think, you know, even for the most committed Marxists, they have to say, well, maybe good Karl got that part wrong. Maybe he was right about history. Maybe he was right about his critiques of capitalism. But maybe capitalism does, doesn't actually have an end point. And so what do we do now? Because we believe in the socialist utopia. We believe in this idea. So how do we, how do we, how do we progress out of the idea or out of the acknowledging the fact that maybe Karl got that one wrong? We got, I've got to work on my segue. So if I say something and then I don't quite know how to segue to you. So we're going to have to come up with a, with a word, a phrase that you can tell me as to whether or not you want to say anything. And I thought of the best way you could do that would be to say, wow, you've left me speechless. And that leaves a lot of, you know, room for interpretation. Well, that's really good. Or no, that was terrible. I don't want to say anything about it. And here's your opportunity to do that. Jeff, I, when I hear Marx and Engels, I'm hearing that they believe capitalism will eventually run out of fuel, and the fuel is the labor, right? So the oppression of the people, of the workers, eventually they'll run out of people to oppress. Perhaps this is a non sequitur, but have we ever on earth ever run out of any commodity it's not, you know, I, I think run out might be too, uh, too strong of a term or maybe possibly, oh, I'm sorry, you left me speechless, Lemiel, but, okay. but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk anyway. Okay. No, it's, I think that the idea is, in the Marxist formulation, it's all about profit. In the capitalist pursuit of profit, they necessarily, you know, have to exploit workers by holding down their wages. You don't run out of workers, but if you keep going after profit, 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 and pushing wages down, 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 eventually you push wages down so far that workers can't even make a living. They can't even survive on what low wages you're paying them. So you don't run out of workers. You've got them to the point where they're below subsistence level, and therefore, you know, they've got all sorts of problems. That's when the capitalism system runs out, and that's where this new neo-Marxist strain starts to come in, too, by the way. That's where we start to pick up, okay, well, if capitalism depresses wages to a point and creates a crisis, how does it solve that issue? How has it solved that issue? You know what? Let me help Marx out. 
you don't have to run uh, the workers into the ground below subsistence levels. You just have to oppress them, financially repress them, or not share enough of the expanding economy such that they're stuck at a certain level. So in the United States, uh, famously, the real wages seem to have been stuck for several decades. In Germany, after the Hartz reforms at the beginning of the, uh, of the millennium, the workers started getting a smaller and smaller share of the expanding economy, even though they're super wealthy, right? The Germans and the Chinese as well. They have brought hundreds of millions of workers from a feudal-like peasantry into the middle class, but they did it on their back. They've been sharing less and less of the expanding economy with the, with the workers, and their consumption levels are at surreal lows right now. So, if, you know, let me help Marx out. Now is a time where workers are being unfairly uh, treated, and for a long time now. Yeah, and so how do we answer that? How do, what seems to be a, a, a big-time divergence between what's supposed to happen and what mm-hmm. it happens, what Marx said was going to happen, what hasn't happened, and all these, these really up-in-the-air types of factors. And, and again, that, it goes back to what we said in the beginning. You know, the revolutionaries believe that the, revolutionary, the revolution itself will cure all these problems. They just don't know how. We just need the revolution, and then we'll figure it out. And unfortunately, the revolution... It's been taking a while. It's stuck in traffic, at least around the many places of the world. And in steps our next philosopher, Antonio Gramsci. Who is he? What was the dilemma he was concerned with? And what was his solution? Well, Antonio Gramsci was concerned about exactly what you were talking about. Is you know, What he said was that, look, capitalism cannot survive on its own. The bourgeois class, which is the capitalist class, because it's such a small minority, it cannot continue to perpetuate the system all by itself. Remember what Marx said. Marx said everything was coercion. It was economic coercion more than everything. Just like, you know, just the way that you put it, Emil. And what, what Gramsci and some of the later neo-Marxists started to believe was that, no, there's more to what the Marxists call these superstructures of society. And it's not purely an economic idea that, you know, the capitalists oppress the workers directly and that's how they hold on to their grip on power. What Gramsci started to think about was what was called cultural hegemony, which is the idea that capitalists aren't just, you know, factory owners. You know, they go to church, they vote, they participate in politics. They do all these sorts of civil activities where civil society as a whole is bought into the capitalist paradigm. And therefore, the way the bourgeois class continues to oppress the proletariat workers is through all of civil society. It's the media. It's the school system. It's the government. All of these things have all accepted the capitalist premises to the point that the capitalist premise becomes common sense. And so the workers who are being oppressed don't really realize they're being oppressed. They're slaves, but they don't know they're slaves. And the reason they're okay with it is because of what what these Marxists call tertiary industries, which is the advance of capitalism through progress and technology that makes workers' lives appear better and better and better. So you don't know you're a slave, but your life gets better and so capitalism is able to continue to hold itself up through the superstructure of cultural hegemony. Well, Gramsci, he was writing in the 1930s. And at that time, what he was saying makes sense. But whoever is watching this right now was saying, wait a minute, it's precisely the opposite now. We've had our counterculture revolution and the media 
and the school system and the academics and all the, the culture in Hollywood now is not supporting capitalism. They are supporting, I don't know, more liberal views and leaning towards, I don't know, the revolution, more socialist. right? It's, yeah, it's, yeah. That's so you, why the revolution has become so common in, 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 in virtual sense is because you're right. A lot of these, uh, that's what Gramsci was saying. Gramsci was a in, very influential philosopher on what had the countercultural hegemony, which was, you know, a term that he coined. And what he said was that, look, the way, the only way the Marxist is going to win because of capitalism's inherent good points, you know, technology, advanced progress, making people's lives better, increasing wealth. The only way that we can counter that is Marxism to get the socialist revolution in a state where capitalism doesn't end, when Marx is wrong. How do we still go about with our socialist revolution? Where do we do it? Well, we have to have this countercultural revolution. We have to take over these means of civil society so that we challenge all of these status quo, all of these premises, what used to be common sense, so that when the time comes, when capitalism is at its weakest, we have a countercultural hegemony already in place that takes over. And, you know, they hope it's a seamless revolution, a nonviolent revolution, as most people do, but they don't really care as long as the revolution takes place. And that's really the point. What Gramsci was saying was that, look, Capitalism doesn't just end. There's not a bright signal that we just say, hey, this is it. Revolutionaries take over. Capitalism's done. They have, to, they have to do a lot of preparation work, which they've been doing for decades, in anticipation of that moment when it's, it's most advantageous for the revolution to strike. And is that how you end your article? By saying, quote, it's, not, it's the proliferation of the knots which has made this time different without anyone else to offer a scientific explanation for so many knots, emotion sure can substitute. An emotion you're referring to, Costello's uh, terrible comment about shooting uh, business executives, uh, putting them up and against even, the wall. Even, Emil, even just Gramsci's argument, if you really boil it down to what he's saying, is that you know capitalism is really kind of good, but you feel all empty inside. So therefore, communism. I mean, that's really what it's an emotional plea. It's no longer a scientific. I mean, Marx considered his view of capitalism's inherent contradictions leading to a final stage. He's considered that to be a scientific view, whereas Gramsci takes a more philosophical view, more of an emotional view that, yeah, capitalism does all these things. And by the way, it's going to keep on going, we think, because it hasn't stopped yet. So the only argument we have for the socialist revolution is that you don't know you're a slave and therefore we're going to wake you up. Let's make you realize you're a slave, and then you're going to give up, trade out, you know, trade out, trade trade in all future economic progress for the socialist paradise. And it's, it, I don't, you know, that's it's 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 not a scientific argument as much as an emotional argument for the communists and the Marxists, the neo-Marxists, really to say, I know what real meaning in life is, and you should, you know, capital. We shouldn't have any more progress in advance because. It, it, we're all just uh, slaves to the capitalist system and, and the uh, minority rule of the bourgeois class. Joined by Jeff Snyder, uh, head of global research for Alhambra Investments. You can find his writings every week, like the article we just discussed, at Real Clear Markets. Now, Jeff, as we segue into part two of our show, I just wanted to remind everyone that this segment is sponsored completely unofficially, 100% unofficially, with no permission whatsoever, by the Bitcoin Magazine podcast, which you were on on August 26th. You were on there for 60 minutes. You were talking about the global economy as seen through the lens of digital assets. So I know we've got a lot of fans 
that are looking for alternative monetary forms. And if they didn't catch that episode, I recommend everyone check that out. But let us move on to another philosopher, and we're going to talk about money. What is money? And on September 28th, you navigate those, uh, that question with the assistance of old hands that have already plied those waters before you, Nicholas Copernicus, which mother would ground me if I didn't remind everyone that he was Polish. So there you are. Uh, David Hume, he was Scottish. Simon Newcomb, he was Canadian. Irving Fisher, he was American. And Milton Friedman, a New Yorker. So let's start out with a quote that you, you, uh, I'm gonna, you referenced, and I'm going to ask you, who said that and what does he mean by it? Quote, we, in our sluggishness, do not realize the dearness of everything is the result of cheapness of money, for prices increase and decrease according to the condition of money. That was Milton Friedman. No, I'm sorry. It's Nicholas Copernicus. But, you know, you can recognize Milton Friedman's that where he says inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. And really, that was Copernicus' way of saying the same thing or, or Friedman's way of, re, of rewording what Copernicus had written, you know, century, half a millennium ago. And it's funny. I think it's interesting to me anyway. I mean, Isaac Newton was a mentor, too. All of these, you know, Enlightenment philosophers were heavily involved in the study of money and, you know, primordial economics, you know, before Adam Smith and things like that. But the idea of money was fascinating to these philosophers and astronomers and all these other people. And they spent a lot of time and effort thinking about these things because there was a lot of reason to be, to spend a lot of time and effort thinking about these things. And I remember Aristotle also had a, a few thoughts on money, which I can't quote off the top of my head, but do you remember what he was writing about? Specifically don't. <laughs> that, that was a great time to use our... our oh, yeah, our, you left me speechless there. Get out of jail card. Yeah. Uh, okay, okay, then. So this the, the article that we're discussing is called Before Hume, Before Carnegie, and it can be found at the Alhambra Investments website. And the reason we're bringing it up is because one of the fans of the show, and that's just a habit of speech. It's really, there's just one fan of the show, and it's, again, mom, so hi, mom. But we got a request for you to discuss David Hume's essay of public credit. And you bring it up in kind of a, and then you reference as that it's kind of a, a reference to the modern bond vigilante. It's like an appeal to what we would understand as bond vigilantes. Can you kind of marry those two centuries together, David Hume and the bond well, vigilantes? I don't want to. I don't want to. You know, make it seem like the everything he said was very simple. But I mean, if we really wanted to put it down or, or distill it down into a very simple thing, to try to get you know, what is the brief summation of what he was saying? You know, uh, of public credit, he said, you know, either the nation must destroy public credit or public credit will destroy the nation. And that's kind of the idea behind you know the modern term bond vigilantes, which was that you know. There are limits to what the government should do. And we put should in scare quotes because, you know, that's really the issue here. What are the limits to government debt and government borrowing? What Hume basically pointed out was, look, you rack up a lot of government debt, you have to tax the hell out of the private economy once to pay it back. So the more debt you rack up today, the worse it's going to be tomorrow. That was really his argument. And it's really the argument that bond vigilantes uh, talk about. And that's what they make, uh, at least they used to when they were, uh, non-dormant. So the idea is, look, more debt, bad. And, and so we're used to that argument. And what I really enjoyed in this article 
is that you then bring up a perfectly reasonable argument that's the polar opposite. And it's again that tension of two seemingly logical statements that are counter opposing each other. So let me, let me quote it. Here it is quote, the funded debt of the United States is the addition of 3,000 millions of dollars to the previously realized wealth of the nation. It is 3,000 millions added to its available active capital. To pay this debt would be to extinguish capital and to lose wealth. To extinguish this capital and lose this wealth would be an inconceivably great national misfortune. Yeah, that was Jay Cook, and uh, Jay Cook is probably not a more is not a well known name, although he should be because he was probably the country's, if not the world's first investment banker, pure raw investment banker that does the things that we think of, you know, Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley. That's Jay Cook. Jay Cook came up with that stuff, and he did it because of the Civil War. You know, the country asked the guy, "Look, we got we got to spend, we got to we got to you know issue a lot of bonds, and we don't know how to do it." They had, you know, we talk about failed auction, people looking for failed auctions nowadays. They actually had some back in during the Civil War period. And they turned to Jay Cook to figure it out. And while he was selling bonds to people, you know, doing the warehousing activities that modern Wall Street banks, investment banks actually do, he realized that, look, man, you know, I'm going to take the opposite view of David Hume, not that he specifically referenced Hume, but the, the opposite view is that, look, you know, this is a national asset. It's not a huge liability. It's not a huge strain. It's actually a national asset. And so you have a guy who basically invented the modern investment bank on the one side, completely polar opposite as, you know, David Hume's, I think, um, for certain circles, more settled science of you know, government debt is always bad. And the point is, there's a lot of ground in between and not just philosophical ground, but historically. It hasn't been one or the other. It's always been a little bit of both. And, and, the, and the, the needle moves back and forth. The pendulum swings back and forth throughout history. It's never been so simple as either or. And uh, for my natural inclination is to side with Hume. I would prefer government to live within its means. But if I can see right now, if we were to... That's it. There's a but here. There's all, and that's, I think that's the point. There's a but. I think we would all prefer... Well, government to live with, own, with its own means, but there there are factors beyond simple, hey, government that's bad that we need to think about and consider. You know, whether we like it or not, we have to be realistic and pragmatic and, practic and practical about the way the world actually is today. And the way it is today is that we have lost a lot of quality collateral in the monetary system that we can no longer rely on. And what is left primarily our government, U.S. Treasury securities. And we see when there's not enough of them, when the government, the American government or other respected sovereign governments do not produce enough debt, the monetary system slows down, grinds down, the economy slows down, and we all suffer for it. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's, it's, it's simple economics, small e economics, right? When money becomes tight and restrictive, there's always a natural tendency to supply that with quasi-money. And so government debt is a form of quasi-money. It has been throughout history. Um, even in the, the national banking era from the Civil War into the early, before the Federal Reserve into the early 20th century, currency, national U.S. dollar currency was tied to the level of government debt. U.S. treasuries, banks to issue currency had to deposit treasuries with the government in order to, in order to be able to get actual paper currency backed by U.S. government bonds. And so 
you know, that if you're already, if you're thinking ahead, that's MMT. MMT was actually practiced in the late 19th century. And at times, the Treasury Department actually acted like a central bank and tried to control monetary factors through the issuance and retirement of debt, taking, taking government bonds, putting them into the hands, what sounds like QE, putting into the hands of, of, of banking system, taking them out of the hands of the banking system at times. And so, you know, it's, it's not necessarily just about how much is the government borrowing, is the government borrowing too much? It's how does that debt fit into the overall scheme of how the monetary and economic system are actually working? And as you said, Emil, in the modern 21st, Euro, 21st century euro dollar system, we have a very special place for the repo market. And so the repo market absolutely gives preference to government bonds. And so you have this double preference where you not only have the interest rate fallacy, which is huge demand for government bonds for safety and liquidity reasons, but you also have the repo, repo shortage, collateral shortage problem, which doubly adds to that. And so governments have, have realized that, hey, they're the only game in town since 2007, so they've gone absolutely crazy. And, you know, it offends people who think David Hume. This, there's really no reason. I mean, this is awful. How can this be? How can it go on time and time again? Year after year, this, this never seems to stop. And the reason it doesn't stop is because the way the system is, the factors outside of David Hume are saying this is how it has to be. Yeah, that's, and I would recommend pragmatism over ideology. No one's saying that David Hume doesn't know what he's talking about. It's just that his particular philosophy is very welcome sometimes and sometimes night because things are not constant in human civilization. And I recommend people read this article. It's a really good one. I really enjoy this one. It's called Before Hume, Before Carnegie. And be, it's, and when people read it, they'll realize that they're, that why you're often asked this question and you are often asked, well, Jeff, you know all these uh, histories, these philosophies, how we got here, and they often ask you what you would do. And I think this is one of the only times where you answer what it was, what it would be that you would do. And, and you start out by saying, we don't live in a perfect world. Do you remember the rest of uh, what you said as to what you would do? I don't remember. <laughs> you, you said that even the best minds who ever lived couldn't agree on what, would, what that would mean, that you, you know, have to make with the best of what you have. And your own argument has largely been that even before thinking about what comes next, which you admit the greatest minds in history can't quite agree on what should come next or what is best. You say we absolutely need to understand where we are right now and how we got there. Yeah, I think it reminds me of, of, of you know what I said before that earlier in the article, which was if you go back to, again to Andrew Carnegie and the, the Panic of 1907. You know, between the Panic of 1907 is why we got the Federal Reserve, and you have to understand at that time the way the national banking system worked and how national currency was tied to government debt. The, way to, the only way we would have avoided getting the Federal Reserve and a central bank was if the government had issued more debt. And to me, <laughs> I think that's a perfect contradiction of kind of where, describing where we are now. I mean, we got the Federal Reserve because the government didn't borrow enough. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's, you, know, you, have to be, you have to pay attention to where you are and all of these other factors beyond the ideal. Look, I, I agree with Hume, too. 
I think under ideal circumstances, we would look at government debt poorly. In fact, it wasn't that much, you know, that, that, much, that much farther in the past, that long ago, when that was the dominant view. I mean, uh, I don't know if you remember the movie Wall Street, where Gordon mm-hmm. Gecko is giving his famous, street to, uh, famous speech, before he gave his famous speech to um, the shareholders of, what was it, the paper company there, whatever the fictional paper company was. And because and they were... The, the, uh, yeah. the, the CEO of this poorly run paper company was arguing against Gordon Gecko's uh, planned uh, takeover because so much debt would be issued. He said, what are we, some piss poor South American country? That was how debt was viewed at one time. And, and nowadays, it's not viewed the same way. And, and the reason for it is because of this monetary and banking evolution, which took place in between, that put the banking system in the middle of it. And because it put the banking system in the middle of it, that meant there was an open door for all of these other factors to, to take advantage of what would happen if the banking system were to ever stumble. And one of those primary factors taking advantage of the stumble has been not just the U.S. federal government, governments all over the world. Sovereign debt is the only real game in town, other than high-quality corporates. In uh, part one of this episode, we opened by discussing a tweet. In part two, we were talking about Jay Cook's 3,000 millions. Now I'm going to bring it all together with a tweet by another noted financier commenting on 3 million millions. And this tweet is from earlier this week, and it is from Ice Cube. Quote, Mr. Cube said, America is a currency creator, so there's no reason for people to live like this. They always say if you print money, it will cause inflation. They just printed three trillion, little or no inflation. Modern monetary theory. Uh, yeah, I don't, it's not modern. It's not. It's not much of a theory either. I don't think. And there's really no money in it. Yeah, but we, I mean, look, we understand that's, where he's coming from. Absolutely, and that's and that's really the the I think the common response we always get, you and I get, is look. I mean, they're printing money. There's no inflation. So what's wrong with printing money? And it's, again, it, it's the, the reason we're, we're doing this podcast and Eurodollar University in, in, uh, in general is that, look, it's not what you see that matters. It's what you don't see. As we just said, why is the government able to take advantage of such low interest rates? Because of what you don't see. It's what you don't see which actually matters. The stuff that's really going on in the world, how it actually works. Why do we have communists like Antonio Gramsci so, so powerful and influential in this day and age when, it, when he really shouldn't be? And it's all the stuff we don't see and nobody seems to have known about. And the, the way we fix that, the way we get out of this mess is to get people to see the stuff that's gone on and to think about the right questions. I start asking the right questions for once, which is, which Mr. Cube should have asked, <laughs> if we printed 3 million million, why didn't we get inflation? Not that it doesn't cause inflation, because as we said, philosophers throughout history have all have the common theme from Milton Friedman to Nicholas Copernicus, money and inflation are related. So for printing so much money and there is no inflation, we don't have the whole story. Well, if you want to get the whole story illustrated, then you'll be happy to know that the third part of this episode that we're about to begin is brought to you by David Parkins. Are you interested in monetary matters, macro, malarkey? David Parkins illustrates all of our work, all of the images that you see associated with these podcasts and tweets. So just wanted to say thank you to David for all the great work that he's doing.
Yeah, and I want to say I'm extremely jealous because most of the time the, the artwork he comes up with should be the whole show. We don't even need to talk. <laughs> just put just put his artwork up there, and it basically tells you the whole to- whole story. You know, they say a picture's worth a thousand words. I think it's his pictures are worth a thousand podcasts. What, what what should we ask him to draw up this time? I'm not quite sure. Maybe Mr. Cube and David Hume together. I don't know, arm in arm. We'll, Ice we'll come Cube, up with David Hume, and Karl Marx. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> there you go. All right, well, let's move on to our third and final article, and it is, quote, small but real progress carrying the yen carry trade into the light. So you posted this on September 25th at Alhambra Investments, and it's going to be a little bit of uh, – Euro dollar inside baseball, uh, but I don't want people to be too worried about it. It's uh, it's revealing. You don't have to understand what cross currency basis swaps are to get a sense of the complexity. And and so let, let's just get started there. And um, let's see here. Let's see here. So writing in the 18th century, legendary English poet Alexander Pope penned an essay on criticism, which was published in 1711. This is an amazing piece of work, and it's three famous English aphorisms that came out of it. One, a little learning is a dangerous thing. I'm always worried about that one. Two, fools rush in where angels fear to tread. I guess I should be worried about that too. And then three, to err is human, to forgive is divine. And that's where you start your piece. It's about an error made, two of them at least, by Bill Dudley. What were the errors? Who is Bill Dudley? Bill Dudley, if people should know, is, was a, a very you know, high-level Federal Reserve official who happened to run some of the most important, or be at the most important positions at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York during some of what are really the Fed's most important moments in history. You know, he was manager of the system open market account during the financial crisis, which, I mean, does not speak very well of the man. After failing at all of those things, uh, famously saying in August 7th, 2009, that nothing was imminent, especially in commercial paper, when two, two days later, the entire system froze, especially in commercial paper. Then, of course, the deal with IOER and getting that completely wrong in 2008. But, you know, one failure after another got Mr. Dudley promoted upstairs to the, to the position of president of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York during the QE era. And during the QE era, he basically, you know, as we just talked about, we're printing all this money. Where are the results? And what he basically said in 2014 was, we're not really sure how this thing works. <laughs> Which is, I mean, that's not really how that what they, you know, the public persona they took for QE throughout its history. I mean, t- 2014, we're, we're almost six years into the QE era in the United States, and they still weren't quite sure if it worked, really, but how would it work if it did work? So um, already we're starting, again, our theme is, hey, we're, we might be missing something. We're, we're supposedly printing money, but we keep expecting the results of printing money, but never get them. So what are we missing? That's right. And Jeff's not exaggerating. Bill Dudley said that, and not just to his friends over a cognac, but, uh, wait, I used the cognac line last week, over a sherry. No, he was. The, this was in a speech, a public speech, at the beginning of 2014, and I'm just going to read this out loud. This is by Bill Dudley, quote, We don't understand fully how large-scale asset purchase programs work to ease financial market conditions. There's still a lot of debate. This is 2014. 
And don't forget, people, 2014 is 14 years after Japan implemented this the first time. Let me continue. There's still a lot of debate. Is it the effect of purchases on the portfolios of private investors? Or alternatively, is the major channel one of signaling? Jeff, those last two points, people might not know portfolio, you know, rebalancing and then signaling. Can you talk about that? Well, signaling is pretty straightforward. It, it, yeah. It's it's basically expectations policy. And I think it's, you know, when we call it signaling or we call it expectations policy, that might be a little bit confusing. But all it is is to the lay person, to the lay business person, you, you realize and you hear about on TV and the media that the central bank is doing something. You don't know what the something is and you don't really care. You're not supposed to care. All you're supposed to know is the central bank did something and therefore you act accordingly. So if the central bank says, I'm printing money, which they don't say, but we're buying assets, we're expanding our balance sheet, and you think that's printing money, you're going to act as if you believe inflation is a foregone conclusion, which is exactly what the signal is meant to signal to you, to act in an inflationary manner. The other channel, potential theoretical channel for quantitative easing, which quantitative easing, let's be clear, is, is, a, is, a, um, is a category of LSAP or large-scale asset purchase. So QE is a, is a sub, subset of LSAPs. So what it's suppo- the other channel it's supposed to work through is um, what we call portfolio rebalancing, which is simply in order to purchase securities, the Federal Reserve has to take them out of the hands of the banking system. So you were a bank, you had these securities, now the Federal Reserve do in response. And so what the, what the Fed would like you to do was, okay, we take some securities out of your hands, now go into the economy and lend and buy risky stuff and do all sorts of activities that are more akin to what happens in a recovery, what happens in a growth economy. So that's portfolio rebalancing. We remove securities from you, forcing you to do more risky stuff. So we've got signals, we've got portfolio rebalancing, and after five plus years of doing four QEs, they still didn't know which one was which, or if they really even worked that well. And Jeff, you take pains in this article to point out the unfortunate timing of some of these statements. So in August of August 7th, and then disaster was on August 9th. In October of 2008, how IOE, IOER was supposed to be a floor, but then turned out to be a ceiling. And then this speech was in January of 2014, which as you talk about in the article, was just months before the third euro dollar crisis began to percolate. And so the first one, if people don't remember, the first one, the epicenter was the Atlantic Basin, and, the, and that was 2007 and 2008. And then the second euro dollar crisis was in the Mediterranean, percolating around there. That was the epicenter, uh, 2011, 2012. The third euro dollar crisis emanated out of the... East China Sea. So tell people what started to happen in 2014, 15, and 16, what China and Japan have to do with the euro dollar system. Yeah, I'm going to go back and disagree with you there because the euro dollar number three, in my view, Emil, was already started when January, uh, in Jan- early January when, when Dudley was stu- making his speech. Because if, if you look, if you, I mean, the US Treasury yields began to fall as soon as the calendar turned 2014 as did the Chinese currency. 
So already, it's, as soon as 2014 started, remember 2014 was supposed to be like 2017. That was supposed to be the big takeoff, the big celebration, the big, we got it, this, this, the financial crisis is finally over. But right from the start, we already had these contrary signals that said, hey, something's missing again. You don't know how QE works, Bill Dudley, and now we have these contrary lack of liquidity signals in very important places, not just the U.S. Treasury market, but the Chinese yuan. Remember, Chinese yuan at that time, everybody said that thing, that sucker just goes up forever because China is invulnerable. doesn't matter what happens to the U.S. It doesn't matter what happens to Europe. China will grow forever because, you know, we love the Chinese for some reason. Well, they did I don't before, know if it's Western you know? self-loathing or what. Well, it was 500 years ago. They were, you know, the epicenter of the world. And so we were just returning back to history. Yeah, and, I, and there's also the people who believe the Chinese are playing this, this really long game, this patient long game. And, you know, our Western short attention span can't even conceive of how the Chinese are so far down the road. And so, you know, it, that was part of the, the, uh, the idea that CNY would only go up. And then all of a sudden it started to fall. So you had treasury yields coming down. You had CNY falling. What that said was that hey, there's something going on in the Asian part of the euro dollar system, this, this hidden stuff we don't talk about. In the Asian part of the euro dollar system, when you start looking into the shadows, what you realize, as you pointed out, Emil, you know, the Atlantic Basin got euro dollar number one, Europeans in that area got euro dollar number two. And so in, as those things were happening over here in the Western part of the world, a lot of the dollar resources were moving toward China and Asia based on the idea that we just said, that China was, you know, genius, long game players who were invulnerable to anything. And all of a sudden, we had bad stuff happen in 2012, 2013, a lot of questions, especially in the summer of 2013. And by 2014, it was starting to become clear that all those dollars that had rushed in in the post-crisis era up to that point were starting to rush back out again. When we talk about rush back out, we're not talking about capital flows. We're talking about monetary destruction in the shadows. And of course, when you start to put all these things together, you know, who was at the epicenter of this Asian, Asianizing, if that's really a word, Asianizing of the euro dollar system up to that point? It was Tokyo. It was Japan. Jap Japan and Japanese banks have been in the have been the epicenter of this Asian influence since 2008. And there's data that we have that shows us, including the tick data that says Japanese banks really stepped up their game in the wake of the first global financial crisis, and their primary customers were the Chinese. So Tokyo was essentially the, the major redistribution point, a redistribution hub for euro dollars and dollar, you know, all these bank liabilities and denominated dollars heading toward China and other parts of Asia. And that's what you do in the article, is you quote yourself from contemporary writing in 2014, 15, and 16, talking about what is happening there and what was called the yen carry trade. And you're bringing all of this up now, Jeff, because a week ago, the Wall Street Journal had an article talking about, hmm, the yen carry trade maybe is not as simple as we were led to believe, that maybe it's actually some sort of synthetic, complex dollar funding mechanism. And so, Jeff, I'm going to quote you, and I don't know if this is too in the weeds for, you know, for the show, but I'll just quote it, and then you, you take it from there. Quote, the carry trade was never foreigners borrowing yen and then swapping into dollar assets. It was Japanese banks putting up yen reserves as an asset, as well as short-term Japanese government bonds as collateral 
against mostly basis and currency swaps in order to then redistribute dollars across Asia and you know what's coming, China. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's been a couple of years, but for a while there, the, the idea and the topic of, you know, people talked about the yen carry trade quite openly, and quite frequently. It was a mainstream idea, mm-hmm. but to me, it was always wrong. It was, I think it was the mainstream trying to make sense of this thing without being, you know, without having the proper frame of reference to understand what that thing really was. And the yen carry trade in popular imagination was foreigners borrowing yen and then, you know, you know, taking advantage of interest rate differentials to make a profit, essentially basically recreating a synthetic bank. And that was always, that was, you know, it was kind of true. There was a kernel of truth to it, but they were missing the key part of it, which wasn't foreigners borrowing yen and then, you know, converting into dollars. It was Japanese banks who already had all the yen assets they would ever need because the Bank of Japan kept giving them yen. (laughs) And the government of Japan, as we talked about in the previous segment, the government of Japan went nuts and created all sorts of JGBs so essentially, Japanese banks had all the yen collateral they could possibly want, but had no, no like everywhere else, had no interest of doing anything in Japan with those assets. And so they decided, why don't we get into the dollar redistribution business? China, China's invulnerable. China needs lots of dollars. They're doing lots of good things. The West is toast. You know, this is post-2008. The West is crap. You know, as El Arian said, this is a new normal for the West, but it's not a new normal for China. So, you know, we've got yen, we'll swap them into dollars, we'll use them as collateral and all these derivatives, and we'll, we'll lend the dollars into China because the Japanese banks had already existing and close relationships with Chinese banks and Chinese companies to begin with. And let's face it, Japan was moving quite a lot of production into China, so there was industrial connections there too. Tokyo made perfect sense to take over this redistribution function of dollars into China. And so that was the yen carry trade. It was Japanese banks redistributing using yen collateral and derivatives into dollars into China. So Tokyo, euro dollar market, China all tied together in one, I don't want to say nice little package, but for a time it was. And then around 2014, it all started to go to hell. I wonder what the Ministry of Finance and the Bank of Japan thought of it all, because on the one hand, it sounds like the Bank of Japan was successful they created reserves and the banks of Japan did something with it. That's what they've been trying to do for decades. But the problem was they did it overseas, not internally. So I wonder if that was bittersweet for them. I don't think it was bittersweet at all. I think they hated the idea because it's basically a slap in the face. It's like, hey, we want you to do something here locally to get us out of our problem the Japanese banks say, "No, nah, no, thanks. We're going to go. We're going to go foreign with it." I mean, it's it's ba- we don't we don't want anything to do with Japan. <laughs> it's it's the worst possible statement. Jeff, just a moment ago, you said that it all started to go sideways in 2014. But now it's my turn to disagree with you. I would say that if you look at the tick data, which you mentioned earlier, the Japanese banks kept uh, borrowing dollars. All throughout 2008, 2009, they didn't even blink. They didn't blink during the European sovereign debt crisis. And during 2014, they sort of paused that third euro dollar crisis. They they just stayed at that level where they were. But it was not until 2017, the autumn of 2017, that Tokyo decided, as you often write, we don't want to do this anymore. And as I've told you before, I point to Japan as the first domino of this fourth euro dollar crisis. Yeah, you know, 
we don't live in a linear world, as we always say, too. So even in 2014, if the if the Chinese system and the rest of the Asian system needed, you know, a high degree of growth of redistribution of dollars into China and the rest of Asia from Japan, then even going sideways or even slightly positive is a contraction, and it can be an enormous problem. But I think you know, you know, the larger point is really that look, this stuff is more complicated than you ever believed. First of all, what we're all taught in school is that none of this stuff exists. That there are very small linkages between economies and monetary systems, in particular. That you know, each economy is essentially a closed system, and that's how DSGE models treat each one of these economies is if there's very small little linkages between them. Therefore, the Federal Reserve's mandate of only being a domestic banking authority makes sense, right? Because there aren't any dollars outside the U.S. that would make any difference for the Fed. And that's just wrong. And it gets, you know, what happened in 2008 was a global dollar shortage. Well, how can there be a global dollar shortage? Because there's this offshore, this vast, complex offshore dollar system that exists and it's taken place right under everyone's nose for a very long time. And when you actually factor in that, you start to get, you know, go, go back to Ice Cube's money printing, right? Well, the Fed printed supposedly money, but it wasn't really money. It created lots of bank reserves. But what actually happened in the shadow system, this vast offshore monetary system? Maybe that is our, the, the reason, or that's how we answer the inflation puzzle that maybe the Fed did something positive. But this offshore system we don't pay attention to, we don't discuss, and we don't we don't factor, took away more than the Fed might have ever added. So if you net it out, even if you consider bank reserves money, which I don't, even if you did, maybe there was more monetary destruction in Japan through China than the Fed ever had bothered to even think about. And that's when you start the light bulb starts should start to go off. We start thinking the answer to a lot of our problems aren't necessarily what's the right monetary system is, as we said in the first, we need to understand what the monetary system actually is right now. And so that, you know, the important point about the Wall Street Journal article a week ago was a sign of progress in that direction. Is that, oh my God, the mainstream is starting to realize that all the stuff they ignored before, you know, the yen carry trade made its appearance in the Wall Street Journal the wrong way many times and many years ago. Now they're starting to ask the right questions and think about the right things and realize that this is much more complicated than we ever thought it was. And that's a sign of progress. So forget, you know, the inside Eurodollar, the inside baseball, that's, that's, that's interesting and that's important. But for people who don't really care about that stuff, it's an overt sign of progress that the mainstream is starting to move toward understanding the global monetary system, number one, global, and number two, it's far more complicated, textured, and nuanced than you've ever been to- led to believe. And that's, that's, that's primary initiative, primary the issue. That is a wonderful, hopeful way to end the show and enter the weekend, Jess. So I'm going to bid you adieu, and thank you very much, and I'll talk to you again next week. All right, take care, Emil. Tokyo and the European people. Tokyo.